I want to welcome you to uh, Plum Creek Chapel, and uh, we are really looking forward to our topic as we continue our study of the end times. This is our 43rd in this series, been over a year now, and we spent 16 weeks, the last 16 sessions, talking about the tribulation period and all that is going to take place during that uh, sh short seven-year period. It won't seem short to those who are left behind and are part of it. Uh, on the earth, but it'll be uh, short relative to human history, and yet it's so full of amazing, um, you know, supernatural cosmic struggles between God and Satan, and that packed into that seven-year period. So we spent 16 weeks talking about that, and we finally kind of put a lid on that last week, and now we're moving on to what comes next. And so we'll, we'll probably end up spending a few weeks uh, on uh, this next topic, which I'll introduce in just a moment. But glad to see everybody. As a reminder, uh, if you haven't picked up the What Lies Ahead book, uh, this is the uh, uh, basically the companion book to everything that we're talking about. A pretty uh, hefty uh, book, 350 pages, a scripture index, subject index, bibliography. There's study questions at the end of each chapter, uh, and it's uh, a comprehensive overview of the end times. Uh, the Tuesday podcast this past week was uh, with Christian Underground News Network that happens every Tuesday. The topic was what the Bible says about eternal rewards. And uh, as it happens, that's an end times related topic as well because we're talking about in the eternity, uh, the rewards that we will receive. So I encourage you to go check that out uh, uh, wherever you listen to Not By Works podcast. Just search for Not By Works Ministries. Uh, but by the way, there's also a chapter in the book, What Lies Ahead, about uh, eternal rewards. And then uh, Wednesday, we weren't able to meet in person this week because of the weather, but we did live stream. And so that video is available. I think it's the 10th in this midweek series that we're doing on how to read and understand the Bible. Uh, uh, those of you that are here and in town, love to have you come out on Wednesday nights if you're able. But if not, the videos are always posted. Uh, the most recent one is always posted at the Plum Creek Chapel website, but you can go to the Not By Works website Click on videos, and then you'll find the midweek service, and you can go back and find all of our midweek services, and so you can listen to all 10 of those or even previous series that we've done on our Wednesday night series. So with that, we want to introduce our topic for this morning, which is the second coming and the kingdom. And I spent quite a bit of time this week kind of putting some things together. I'm really excited. This always happens. I, I study it and put together an outline of things that I want to do, and then I get done, and I think, there's no way I'm going to be able to talk about all of this in one week, uh, and I'm, but I'm motivated to do it. I wish I could get all of the information to you as quickly as possible, but that's just not uh, practical. So we'll just kind of chip away at it week after week, and hopefully it'll be encouraging to you as it was to me as I kind of uh, put this together. But let's, uh, let's, since we're kind of transitioning out of that tribulation period, that 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year period that's the final piece of the puzzle, in Daniel's 490-year plan, uh, let's let's take a moment to kind of put this all in context once again. So we'll start with that 490-year prophecy from Daniel. We've talked about. It. I think we dedicated a whole session to this many many weeks ago. Uh, but uh, Daniel, as you know, uh, about 500 years or so before Christ, to prophesy during the end of the Babylonian captivity and. Uh, Jeremiah's prophecy of a 70-year captivity was coming to an end, and so Daniel prayed and asked the Lord for the next phase in his plan. What comes next for your people Israel? What's the next step? Uh, we're coming out of 
bondage in Babylon, and we'd like to know what's next. And so God revealed in response to Daniel's prayer the next 490 years. And it began, as you see on the screen there, with the decree of Artaxerxes, March 5th, 444 B.C., and it ran straight 483 years uninterrupted, ending, the 483rd year, ending with the triumphal entry of Christ as the Messiah came, just as Daniel predicted he would, or God predicted through Daniel. But then you see uh, that according to Daniel's prophecy, there would be a, a gap of time, uh, that after that 483rd year, the prophecy would sort of suspend. It would pause, if you will. And uh, Daniel tells us that the Messiah who had just come, would then be cut off, which we know he was just days after the triumphal entry. He was crucified. Uh, Daniel also tells us that after the end of the 483rd year, the temple would be uh, destroyed, which it was a few decades later after the crucifixion and resurrection in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple. And then Daniel goes on to say that the final seven years in that 490-year plan would begin with the signing of the peace treaty when the Antichrist is unveiled and, and signs a global peace treaty protecting uh, Israel. And so obviously that has not happened yet. And we believe that since the first 483 years of Daniel's prophecy were fulfilled literally, like all of prophecy, frankly, uh, that the final seven years will, of course, be fulfilled literally too. And so we spent the last several weeks, of course, talking about that seven-year period. We don't know when that's going to happen. Um, but uh, it's still yet future. Now, the yellow arrow that you see on the screen is where we are now in our sequence of events. The uh, tribulation is ending and Christ is coming back. And what I'm going to start with this morning in just a moment is seven reasons that I've come up with for the second coming. Now, there may be more. I, I could have come up with more. It depends on how you know, narrow you want the focus to be or, or how detailed you want it to be. But I think there are seven reasons that really jump off the page to me uh, for the second coming. We'll start with that, and then we're going to get into, in the weeks to come, key second coming passages and kind of dissect some of those. Of course, we've looked at a few of those over the course of this study in a different context. We looked at, for example, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus teaching about his return, which obviously mentions his second coming. But we're going to kind of give you at least in my mind, uh, down the road here, uh, some of the key passages that speak of the second coming or the return of Christ to establish uh, his kingdom. And remember, we're titling this, this will be part one when you see it on the video. We'll call it part one and then we'll just keep going till we finish. Um, but uh, we're calling it the second coming and the kingdom because you can't separate those two. His return is to establish and inaugurate uh, the kingdom. So that's where that yellow arrow points, at least from Daniel's framework. If you zoom out from Daniel's prophecy and just look at the, the full end times chart, you can see uh, the chart we've looked at a lot. And for the last 16 weeks, we've highlighted in yellow that part right in the middle that is the seven-year tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble, that great day of the Lord's wrath. Um, and we talked a lot about the Antichrist and the, the false prophet and all of the things that go on during that time. Well, now I've shifted the yellow highlighting into what we're going to talk about for the remainder of this whole series, uh, which is starting today with the second coming. Uh, now you'll notice uh, on the chart there a couple of things I just want to point out because we haven't really spent a lot of time on this chart. I've showed it frequently, but it's been a while since I kind of dissected it. But all the way on the far left, 
you see the apostolic age, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and then uh, the time of the apostles during the life and ministry of Christ. Then the cross representing, obviously, the resurrection and the atoning work of Christ uh, at Calvary. Then he, he resurrected, and then the church was born. Obviously, this chart is not shown to scale because we're trying to focus on the end times. So that part that's mentioned there where it says church so far has been 2,000 years. Uh, so obviously not drawn to scale. But then according to Scripture, the church age will end with the rapture. And then sometime after the rapture, I believe fairly quickly after the rapture, the Antichrist will rise to world prominence, uh, set himself up as a ruler of the world, and sign that treaty. And that starts the clock ticking on that final seven-year period we were just talking about, Daniel's, the rest of Daniel's prophecy. Uh, so we've talked about all that, but now we're going to talk about the, the return of Christ. And you'll notice uh, back on the far right now that after the second coming, and you see two passages listed there as a reference that we will talk about when we get to key passages on the second coming, Matthew 24 and Revelation 19. Uh, but after that, there's a preparation period of 75 days. This 75-day interval comes from Daniel 12. Uh, verse 11 mentions... 30 additional days that I believe will extend beyond uh, the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. You know, so in other words, after the return of Christ. And I believe it's during that time that they're going to cleanse the temple and uh, rebuild uh, the temple, or at least begin that process. And it's probably during that time that the judgments on Israel, unbelieving Israel, and the judgments on the Gentile nations will take place. We're going to talk about those probably this morning here. Um, and then verse 12 of Daniel 12 mentions another 45 days for a total of 75 days after the end of the tribulation. And uh, so basically the best, it doesn't really give us a lot of details of, of why, but the best we can tell is those reasons I just gave you, and that in total 75 days are required for Christ to sort of set up uh, his you know, the preparation for the kickoff party to the kingdom, the banqueting supper that will be the first thing that happens at the kingdom. So um, he's got to do all of the different judgments and things. And, uh, of course, the temple, according to Ezekiel, will be rebuilt after the Antichrist has desecrated the tribulation temple. Uh, so, by the way, there it means there are two more temples to come. Remember, when all the people that are interested <coughs> in the end times are obsessing about the rebuilding of the temple, remember, that's not the final temple. It is prophetically significant, and it's exciting to know that there are plans in the work to rebuild the temple, but the temple that is to be built next is the one the Antichrist, the false Christ, is going to set up his reign and rule in and, uh, and, then, and desecrate it when he declares himself to be God. And then that will be destroyed at Armageddon, and then the final glorious temple, temple where God's glory returns, according to Ezekiel 40 to 48, will be built uh, during the, the kingdom period. So that's that 75-day period that you see reflected on the chart. And then you'll notice in purple uh, is the Messianic Kingdom. And that's my preferred way to refer to the kingdom that is to come, the earthly kingdom, rather than the millennial kingdom. You'll still hear people refer to it that way. In fact, uh, uh, when we get to that topic down the road, uh, I'll mention uh, perhaps the best book ever written, on the kingdom, and there are some good ones out there, is uh, by John Walvert, who was one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, 
wrote, I don't know, 30 or 40 books in his career, but he's with the Lord now, but his book on the kingdom is called The Millennial Kingdom. So it's a pretty common way to refer to it, uh, but I prefer not to call it the Millennial Kingdom because that phrase uh, sort of leads you to believe that the kingdom is a thousand years, millennium, 1,000. Uh, and as you see, the, the kingdom is not a thousand years. The kingdom is eternal. And we'll talk about this when we get there, and I'll, I'll make the case biblically. But just about every passage that talks about the coming kingdom, uh, by the way, that's another great book by Andy Woods, The Coming Kingdom, uh, or is it The Kingdom to Come? I think it's The Coming Kingdom anyway. And there's several others uh, out there. Uh, George Peters, The Theocratic Kingdom. Um, Alvin McLean. Al, J. Alvin McLean. I was just thinking the guy from uh, Grace. I couldn't think of his name. J. Alvin McLean, and his book was called... Uh, uh, anyway, just look up Alvin McClellan, the, the coming kingdom or the kingdom come, something like that. So, um, but uh, the, the kingdom is eternal. Just about every passage of scripture that talks about the kingdom mentions that Christ shall reign forever and ever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And those kind of things like Daniel 7, for example. So the distinction is that the millennial phase of the kingdom is on the old earth, the, the existing earth, the earth that we now occupy. After the thousand years, that earth will be destroyed, utterly destroyed. Old and New Testament alike talk about that and, and recreated in sinless perfection. And the kingdom will continue in perpetuity in the eternal state, in the new heavens and the new earth, when time shall be no more. So that's the way I uh, chart it out. Um, and so this is kind of where we're at. You can tell we're kind of coming toward the end. By the way, we... We, I know it's been so long, we, you can't probably remember, but we didn't start with the tribulation. That's only been the last 16 weeks. We started with things like the rapture, and actually we started even before that with the Abrahamic covenant, which we're going to review a little bit about that in connection to the second coming. Uh, so we've been kind of working our way from left to right, and we're getting toward the end of this study uh, on the end times, though still much to come. And then one last chart, again, to sort of put this in perspective, is our chart on the book of Revelation. Uh, since so much of our teaching about uh, the tribulation period has come from Revelation chapters 6 to 18, uh, I thought it would be good to kind of show you where we are in that. So the end of the Revelation, chapters 20 to 22, are all about the kingdom. Chapter 20 is the millennial phase. Chapters 21 and 22 speak primarily of the eternal state, though there's some sort of back and forth. There are certain parts of Revelation uh, 21 and 22 that are speaking of the current uh, earth kingdom uh, in the millennium. So you have to kind of look at the context. But so, so here we are towards the end of the book of Revelation as well. So any questions about sort of the big picture, where we are in our study before we dive into seven reasons for the second coming or any comments or thoughts? All right. Well, great. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about seven reasons for Christ's second coming. And this first one really should get you excited. And you have to think in terms of the context. You know, we, we look at the end times, especially those of us that study the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical uh, context and think about things, and we tend to compartmentalize it into charts like this, and we think about this is the next event, or in my book I've got an appendix of sequential order of end times events, and they're numbered, you know, so you think, oh, this is the next thing. But remember, everything happens in a context and so at the moment that the return of Christ happens, when he splits the eastern sky, comes back on the Mount of Olives and fulfills that prophecy, 
the biggest reason in that moment in history for his return is to judge the Antichrist. Remember, the Antichrist has been ruling the world for seven years and wreaking havoc and, I believe, indwelt by Satan himself. And Satan uh, thought that he had finally taken over the world and defeated uh, God, the creator of the universe. And so if you think about it from the perspective of those on earth, which uh, there will be both believers and unbelievers at that time on the earth, uh, the church won't be here. We will have been already raptured, but there will be people who get saved after the rapture. And by the time the seven years is up, there's a whole host of people that are saved, believers. And then, of course, the only other alternative is there are a bunch of unbelievers. You're one or the other. And so at that time, there's been, you know, believers have been hiding out uh, from the Antichrist. And those who survive till the end of the seven years will be the ones that get to populate the kingdom in their physical bodies. But, of course, many, many, many believers during that seven-year period have been martyred, been killed, murdered, uh, beheaded by the Antichrist and his satanically inspired and led regime. And so in at that moment in human history, Christ is coming back and he's going to defeat the forces of evil led by the Antichrist. So uh, there are uh, several end times eschatological, meaning end times judgments. We've talked about this before. Uh, one of them we've already addressed, and that was the Bema judgment, or the judgment seat of Christ it's called. And that's a, not a judgment to see who gets into heaven or not. It's a judgment of rewards only. Uh, it's actually what we talked about this past Tuesday on the podcast. But the next one here in terms of order is this judgment of the Antichrist and the false prophet whom we've been talking uh, so much about. And so this happens at the second coming. Uh, Christ comes back, uh, you know, to, to judge uh, the Antichrist. Remember, the false prophet is the second in command, sort of his sidekick, who's put in charge of economic uh, things during that seven-year uh, period. But the verse for this is from Revelation 19 and verse 20. Of course, chapter 19, 11 to 16 is the preeminent passage on Christ's return, and we'll get there. But uh, right now we're talking about seven reasons for the second coming, and this is a big one. That's why I listed it first. Verse 20 says, Then the beast, that's the Antichrist, was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, Remember, he's going to set up images all around the world for people to worship the same way uh, Nebuchadnezzar did and other ancient Near Eastern pagan uh, leaders. But notice, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So this is their judgment. Uh, these are human beings. Okay. The Antichrist is not a spirit being. He's a physical human being. He's indwelt by the prince of demons, Satan himself, I believe, during this time, the same way Judas was indwelt by the prince of demons, Satan, uh, in the, at the first advent of Christ. But they're human beings, and so they, were, they will face particular punishment. So all unbelievers who choose not to receive the free gift of eternal life paid for by the blood of Christ will spend eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. And they will have no one to blame but themselves because the offer of salvation has been freely given. It's universally known, especially by this time, everyone on earth will have heard the actual gospel presentation. 
And if they choose not to believe it, that's on them. So uh, Christ can offer you forgiveness and eternal life, but he's not going to force you to take it. You have to choose of your own free will to take it. And you do that simply by placing your faith in him as the only one who can forgive sin and give eternal life. And so, but although all unbelievers will end up in hell, there are degrees of punishment in hell the same way there are degrees of reward in heaven. And we get this from passages like Luke 12 and others. And so these two will certainly have a place of severe punishment for all they did in terms of uh, uh, deceiving the world and, and, and persecuting believers. So the first reason Christ comes back is to judge the Antichrist in that historical moment. And so while there will be, while the reality is there's a lot more going on with Christ's second coming and a lot more to come as a result of his return, in that moment in history, it's going to be an incredible blessing to those who have been hiding out, who survived, who've been hiding in caves or uh, gone underground and you know, things are getting worse and worse and worse. And remember the, the bold judgments that happen right there at the end of the tribulation. And then the battle of Armageddon uh, takes place. And, uh, you know, the sense of impending doom and wondering if they're going to survive this massive war as the troops are building up all around the plains of Megiddo there. Uh, and yet then in a moment, lightning is going to flash from the east to the west. The Messiah comes back and those believers... Uh, we're just talking general believers. We're not even talking about Israel at this moment, but just the believers on earth are going to say a collective hallelujah and be relieved as they're rescued uh, at the end of this uh, uh, period. So, uh, you know, as we try to make a modern day application, I'm sure you're keeping up with the news uh, over in Ukraine, uh, but, you know, Russia has 100,000 troops now stationed over there and moving in all kinds of uh, military weapons. Of course, the U.S. is too and other NATO allies uh, through surrounding areas over there. Uh, but Russia is really building up. So if you're a, uh, a citizen of Ukraine, we're not talking spiritual here, I'm just making a practical application, and you're up, especially up along the border there, uh, you know, you're thinking, wow, this does not look good. And you're fearful and you're wondering, is this going to explode into a war? And it probably will, by the way. Uh, at least that's the way it's headed. Uh, and, uh, and so you're, you're, you're thinking, I mean, how, who's going to rescue us? Well, how, what's going to happen? Are we going to be killed, right? Will we survive this war? And that's the way people are going to feel on earth uh, just prior to the return of Christ. It's gotten worse and worse and worse for seven years, building up to a climax. And they've already, if they've survived this long, they've had to survive horrible, you know, um, all kinds of judgments, uh, the judgments on the sea and judgment with locusts and all kinds of uh, earthquakes, the greatest earthquake ever. And so Christ comes back in that moment to judge the Antichrist, to win that battle. The second reason that uh, I want to mention that Christ comes back is to regather and restore Israel to the Holy Land. To regather and restore Israel to the Holy Land. Time and again, the Old Testament promises that in the end times, Israel will once again inhabit the land, and in fact, they will actually inhabit the land to the fullest extent of the boundaries that was promised to them 
in Genesis 15. They've had the rights to that land. Well, they've had the rights to it since God made the covenant with Abraham, but they've also actually had the rights to possess it at previous times, but they've never actually possessed it. Joshua talks about that. Uh, but during the end time, during the, after the return of Christ, when the kingdom comes, they will get the land. So let's just look at a few passages uh, that talk about this from a prophetic perspective. Ezekiel the prophet says, Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. That's not happened yet. Uh, the return to the land in, uh, you know, after World War II, May 15, 1948, when Israel was rebirthed as a nation state, uh, that was not a return in belief. That does not fit the biblical picture of how this return will happen. As we're going to see in a second, the return that we're speaking of here at Christ's, at Christ's second coming is a supernatural return. Uh, not a, you know, not an, an organic, natural thing that just sort of happens. And so uh, a lot of uh, Bible teachers who agree with our understanding of the literal grammatical historical approach to Scripture and a pre-tribulational dispensational understanding of God's plan of the ages will point to passages like uh, the dry bones in Ezekiel 37, right? Yeah, 37, uh, and say, oh, the... 1948 was the beginning of the fulfillment of that. And I understand what they're trying to say, but I don't, I don't see it that way. I think uh, the full extent, all of Ezekiel 37, when the, when the dry bones come back to life, will be fulfilled when Israel, in belief, having believed the gospel, comes back into the land and it worships God. Uh, right now, uh, Israel is a nation, and there are no doubt believers in Israel, Jewish believers, uh, uh, and I know some great Jewish Messianic ministries. So we know there are believers there, but as a corporate nation, they're no different than they were in the first century when the leaders cried, crucify him, crucify him. Uh, you know, these Jewish leaders are not believers. They might be an ally, they might be democratic, they might be like-minded, and certainly because God has a future plan for the Holy Land of Israel and for the people of Israel, we ought to support Israel, we ought to defend Israel, we ought to understand that Israel is, the, the Bible says, the apple of God's eye, that's a biblical phrase, and God's chosen nation. But at the same time, there does, there's nothing that is a fulfillment of prophecy about Israel today. That is all yet future. So let's look at a few other passages. Here's Ezekiel 36 in the context of uh, the uh, New Covenant, uh, Ezekiel's discussion of the New Covenant. When that is fully inaugurated, God's covenant program at the return of Christ, then you shall dwell in the land. Notice then, if you go back and look at the context, it's talking about the coming kingdom. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. By the way, you see that same phrase, which is really uh, fraught with prophetic significance and intimate significance there about the, the culmination of all things in Revelation 21. This is the moment. I mean, that phrase, you will be my people and I will be your God, that's a special intimacy that will come when Christ takes the throne, and especially for the chosen nation, Israel. Uh, Amos uh, says it very plainly, I will bring back the captives of my people, Israel. 
They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. I mean, think about what the land of Israel is going to look like at the end of the tribulation after Armageddon. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. So the reason this passage is important, the reason that I put it on here, there's we could speak of dozens of passages that speak about Israel's return to the land. Uh, but the reason I picked this one and some of these others, but this one in particular, is because if, hypothetically, something, you know, that, that, that we're wrong in our speculation that it's not going to be long before Christ comes back. I mean, it just seems like, as we've talked about in so many series, that the stage is being set, that Satan has conquered so many frontiers, you know, the one world system is, is right around the corner. It just seems like the rapture is going to happen soon. And then, of course, the second coming will happen not long thereafter. But if we're wrong about that, and the Lord tarries his coming, uh, and hypothetically, uh, now don't shoot me when I say this, but just try to follow my logic, but hypothetically, Israel were to be banished from the land again, you know, another nation was to do battle, maybe Syria or whoever, and, and Israel would be scattered again. For me, it would not in any sense destroy my confidence in Scripture because I don't believe they're in the land today as a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a setting of the stage, possibly, but it's not a fulfillment of prophecy. The next great prophetic event on God's timetable that will be fulfilled is what? The rapture. Right? Nothing has to happen before the rapture. Things could happen before the rapture, and that's why, you know, if you press me on it, I don't think my hypothetical will ever happen. I think this was a setting of the stage. Israel had to be a nation again for there to be a supernatural return at the second coming. Uh, there has to be Israel a nation again before the Antichrist can set up his world headquarters there and build another temple and desecrate it. All that has to be there, and so clearly it seems like... Uh, that 1948 is prophetically significant, but that's different from being the fulfillment of uh, the dry bones prophecy or some of these other uh, prophecies. So if you uh, look at my uh, DVD or video called uh, uh, Top, Top, and I forget the title, but it's Top 10 Reasons We Might Be Living in the Last of the Last Days. One of the reasons is the rebirth of Israel. So I believe that it's probably prophetically significant. It's setting the stage. But what I'm saying is if you think that's the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37, and then Israel will be the white, were to be wiped from the map again, only to be rebirthed a thousand years from now or whatever God's timetable is, well, that's going to shake your theology, or you're going to have to go back and correct a lot of chapters in your prophecy books when you pointed to 1948 and said, this is Ezekiel 37. So I don't see it that way. And the reason is, once they get there, uh, they will no longer be pulled up from the land. And that won't be guaranteed to happen until Christ comes back. So uh, until Christ comes back, Israel is just part of the setting of the stage. Uh, and especially in light of the fact that Romans 10, which by the way, I talked about this Wednesday night, uh, one of your boys had asked me to do uh, Joel 2 as a, a, a study, and since I had kind of used that as a case study, even though we weren't meeting, I went ahead and 
who did it on the video. So if you haven't watched the video, go back and watch it. You watched it. You did? Good. All right. Did you did you agree with me and Jesus on everything? Yeah. You did? Okay, good. All right. I'm glad. That's good to know. Um, so, but I talked about Romans 10 and how Paul says that when Christ comes back, Israel will call on the name of the Lord, which if we compare Scripture with Scripture, we know that means they're going to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord in fulfillment of Psalm 118, that Messianic prophecy, and also fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew 23 when he said to the Jewish leaders of his day, you know, you will not see me again until you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because they didn't cry that. They cried, crucify him, crucify him. So Jesus said earlier, that same week, all of this, Matthew, roughly Matthew 21 to the end of the chapter, well, 21 until the cross is that final week of Christ's life in Matthew. And so I think it's in 21, might be 22, he says to them, um, to the Jewish leaders of the first century, I'm going to take the kingdom from you and give it to a nation worthy of it, meaning the future believing nation of Israel. But anyway, Jesus says, you will not see me again till you cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, blesses you, comes in the name uh, of the Lord. So uh, Paul is making that same point in Romans 9 through 11, that yeah, the kingdom is coming, the deliverer is going to come out of Zion, Romans 11, 25, and 26, but not until Israel first believes the gospel, because how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? That's Paul's point. So I believe uh, that, you know, Israel is definitely going to be, according to scripture, regathered in the land, but it will happen at the second coming. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, another key passage. The Lord God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. Or Isaiah 27, 13, so shall it be in that day. What day? The return of Christ, the Messiah. Of course, at this point, it would not have been uh, characterized in that, you know, 700 some odd B.C., time as the return of Christ because the Messiah hadn't even come the first time yet. So a lot of times the Old Testament prophets merged the coming of Messiah as pictured as one event, even though as God revealed more and more, it became clear that it was going to be a two-phased coming of Christ. Came, came once as the suffering servant to pay for the sins of the world and to be crucified by his chosen nation Israel. And he'll come a second time to be received. First time he was crowned with thorns. The next time he's going to be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. So from Isaiah's day, it wouldn't have been characterized as the return. But still, we now, having the whole of Scripture, can look back on it and understand he's talking about the second coming of Christ, not the first coming. But he says, uh, The great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt. Just picking two uh, you know, sort of poetically here, famous enemies of Israel as representative of all the places that Israel has been scattered. And they shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. And then speaking of Ezekiel 37, uh, this is what I believe will happen at the second coming, not what happened in 1948. Then say to them, thus says the Lord your God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. So that has not happened yet. Uh, there was a, a return, indeed, in 1948, but it was in unbelief, at least nationally, and it wasn't God 
supernaturally gathering them back into the land. Uh, and we'll look at that passage in just a second. Uh, Joel 2, the passage that I used as a case study for our Wednesday night, uh, how to read and understand the Bible. We were talking about the context. And Joel says, It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So go back and listen to that podcast or watch that video from Wednesday. But this is not a general statement of how to have eternal life. Nobody gets into heaven because they called on the name of the Lord. How many people throughout history have said, Oh my God! And does that mean they're in heaven today because they called on the name of the Lord? No, no. This is not talking about individual eternal life salvation. This is talking about national deliverance salvation for the nation of Israel. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. As the Lord has said, among the remnant from the Lord, whom the Lord calls. For behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, so Joel is talking once again about this regathering of Israel in the land. And then finally, uh, the last verse I want to look at under this uh, point is the words of Christ himself. He, Jesus said, and he will send the angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This is at his second coming, Matthew 24, 27 to 31. Uh, Christ comes back, and when he does, he's going to send his angels, and they will, again, supernaturally regather Israel into the land. doesn't mean that there might not already be some Jews in the land. There's some there now. And if the things happen anytime soon, then obviously at the return of Christ, there would be some believing Jews in the land. And it doesn't also preclude the fact that maybe some believers will just sort of from nearby lands make their way back. But by and large, the return is going to be a supernatural one where Christ supernaturally with the angels picks them up and relocates them there. Yeah. So when you look at the last part of this verse, from one end of heaven to the other, mm -hmm. could you look at that and say, well, there, he's gathering the angels or the elect in heaven to come back with him? No. So... That's a great question. So the question is, uh, the last part there from one end of heaven to the other, is he speaking there of gathering some part, Jew, Jews that are already in heaven? No, this is a figure of speech, and it's called a, uh, uh, the, the name escapes me, but it's a part, it's a, when you use two opposite things to refer to everything. And we see these all in Scripture. We're going to talk about figures of speech coming up, but the Bible begins with, with this type of figure of speech. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The idea is, and everything in between. Or David might say, thou knowest my rising up and my sitting down. He knows everything about me. And this is the way he's using it here. It basically means from everywhere on earth. Heaven doesn't always have to mean the dwelling place of God or the eternal dwelling place of the redeemed, Jew and Gentile. It can mean the heavenlies. It can mean you know, what we see when we look up. So basically, he's using a figure of speech here to say, everywhere on earth these angels are going to come back. Okay, uh, so let's look at number three. We've got a little more time here. So seven reasons for Christ's second coming. To judge the Antichrist, number one. Number two, to regather and restore Israel to the Holy Land. But number three, to judge and punish faithless Israel one final time. So remember, Israel doesn't get to automatically inhabit the kingdom just because of their Jewish heritage. 
They, like every human being, must receive the free gift of salvation, personal salvation, by faith. Abraham set the example, and we read that Abraham believed God and was declared righteous. The only way to be individually, personally justified before a holy God, to be declared righteous, is by faith. And so, uh, if you remember, when we talked about the Olivet Discourse for several weeks in a row there many months ago, one of the final application sections of that uh, is the uh, parable of the talents in Matthew 25. And I pointed out that I believe the talents is uh, referring strictly to Israel. The whole Olivet Discourse is referring strictly to Israel. And that the one person that did nothing with the talent represents unbelieving Israel. And basically Jesus was saying in the Olivet Discourse, I'm coming back. Here's the signs to watch for because they had asked for a sign of his return. When you see all these things, you know I'm coming soon. So therefore be ready. He says several watchfulness parables like the ten virgins and the, uh, the householder who's the thief comes in. He says if you'd known when the thief was going to come, he would have prepared the house. Uh, all these different uh, Noah in Noah's day, he said, man, they were you know, eating and drinking. They were going about life even though Noah was warning them a judgment is coming and yet they ignored it and so the judgment came and they were swept away by the flood and destroyed. So he uses all those analogies and he ends with the talents, which I believe, as I said back then, is Jesus' way of saying, you're going to have one final time to, to, to place your faith in me. And if you don't do it this time, it's over. And you're going to be cast into outer darkness, meaning left out of the kingdom, out in the dark. Remember, the kingdom is, is going to begin with this great banqueting supper uh, that is talked about in the Old and New Testament. Uh, Jesus, for example, in Matthew 8 early on in his ministry, uh, after commending the faith of the centurion, he says, wow, I've not seen this kind of faith anywhere in Israel. But I tell you guys, he says, people will come from the east and the west to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. Where? At the banqueting supper. And then Jesus in that section of Matthew that I talked about a moment ago, 21 and following, I can't remember where it's in 21 or 22, but he talks about the great supper. Right? Many are invited, but some of them didn't have faith, and so they didn't get to, to stay. So, uh, but that supper is pictured in Jewish culture as happening at night. And, of course, you would have lights, which meant a stick of fire. They didn't have electricity. And you would, you know, you would see the festivities, and you would go out to, uh, to meet them. That's the whole uh, context, by the way, of the parable of the ten virgins. Remember, they didn't have enough oil. They thought that Christ wasn't going to come anytime soon, and so they, they ran out of oil. So they didn't have what was needed, uh, uh, which in the context means faith. But uh, so, you know, here the, the phrase in Matthew 25, when unbelieving Israel at this final time at the return of Christ is left out in the dark, outer darkness literally just means left out in the dark, the picture is, you know, them standing outside the kingdom looking in, wishing, oh, I, I wanted to be a part of that, but I'm not. Why? Because I lacked faith. So uh, this is one of the reasons for Christ's return. It's kind of that final moment for the nation of Israel because after his return, he establishes the kingdom. The, the, the king of kings and lord of lords is on the throne, the great uh, throne of David as prophesied in 2 Samuel 7. He's come back and in the rebuilt temple as Ezekiel describes so magnificently in chapters 40 to 48. So we see this prophesied in passages like Ezekiel 20 
when he says, speaking of the future kingdom, I will purge the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. And then you will know that I am the Lord. Uh, so this is, again, that prophecy uh, of the return uh, of Christ. Yeah. So is that outer darkness hell? Ultimately, it's hell. The question is, is outer darkness hell? Ultimately, it's hell. Uh, so I have uh, uh, several resources on that just to mention. We did a five-part radio series on outer darkness passages. Uh, so that would be audio. Uh, I have a book. I didn't write it, but, it's, but I highly recommend it. It's about that thick. It's the comprehensive quintessential book on the outer darkness passages, and it's called Should Christians Fear Outer Darkness? Uh, you can get that from the Not By Work store. Uh, but um, there are three passages, all in Matthew, where Jesus uses that phrase. Only time it's ever found in the New Testament. Matthew 8, when, when as I just described, he's commending the faith of the centurion, and he says that unbelieving Israel is going to be cast into outer darkness. And then Matthew uh, 20... One, and then Matthew 25, the passage we just talked about. So to a Jew listening to him say that, they would have understood it as they don't get into the kingdom. But as we understand the scripture and compare scripture with scripture, anybody who doesn't get into the kingdom at Christ's return, there's only one other alternative, hell. So it's not strictly speaking speaking of eternal dwelling place, heaven or hell, but that's the end result. Because when Christ comes back here at the second coming, you're either believing Israel, so you get regathered into the land, or unbelieving Israel, so you get judged and cast into outer darkness. Or, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, a part of the nations, and you're either a sheep or a goat. And the sheep, he says, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. By the way, never forget that the kingdom, even though it's Israel's kingdom and was prophesied for Israel, it was intended to be global for everyone on earth. We're all supposed to be recipients of the ultimate covenant and promise of Abraham. Uh, or you're you know, a goat, and so you're cast into the uh, everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So not getting into the kingdom at Christ's return is essentially means you're going to hell. So good question. So let me just finish this point because we're out of time. Uh, so I will purge them. Uh, and then the passage I just talked about, the parable of the ten virgins in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says the same thing. Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. That's what he's going to say to those who didn't have faith, those uh, unbelieving Israel. And then later on in chapter 25, the parable of the talents, again, cast the unprofitable servant, remember the servant is Israel, unbelieving Israel, into outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's the first three. We'll pick up with the fourth one next time. But just to conclude, the first three uh, reasons Christ is coming back, to judge the Antichrist, to regather and restore Israel to the Holy Land, and to judge and punish faithless Israel one final time. All right? Awesome. Well, let's take a break. Uh, we'll reconvene for our worship service at 10 o'clock here uh, locally, those of you that are watching online, we typically start the live stream when I uh, get up to preach, and that's usually about 10.25 or 10.30, give or take five minutes uh, mountain time. So thank you guys.